Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, my question for you this week is one that I think you'll actually be able to answer. It's actually just a legitimate baseball question that you can have a yes or no answer to. Hell yes. I love it. I'm throwing yes. you softballs Mike Trout these days. is still the best player in baseball. <laughs> Done. Wow. Shade Next question. Show, shade to Shohei Otani. Um, do you think Pete Alonso will ever lose a home run derby that he opts into? So he, he's not just going to do the home run derby every year for the rest of his career till he retires. Right. He will say no to it at some point, probably. Most mm-hmm. people do. But if he is in the home run derby, do you think he will ever lose it? No, this man was built for the home run derby. And this is like, you know, we're, we're in real like sports talk radio feels right now. Like the man is just has home run derby mindset. Like he goes out there. He wants to win. The I home run derby is the blood flowing through his veins. Yes. I mean, I think it's funny that like he's not even a particularly interesting guy. He's just really good at going up and hitting dingers. And to be fair, I also think it depends on. Who's throwing to him, right? Yeah. Because having a being able to get up there and hit home runs, swing after swing, is only half the battle. You need someone who's going to be able to throw one down the pipe again and again and again. And boy, did he have that! I sort of like the element of you get to choose anyone on planet Earth to throw to you, and it's up to you to find the person that you have the biggest chemistry with, the biggest connection with. Yeah. But for competitive balance sake, don't you think it would be kind of funny if they had to like just pick the names out of a hat? Like everybody chose their pitcher. Yeah. But you had to pick the names out of the hat. So in the second round, like the guy who was throwing to Otani has to throw to Alonso and we see who's really the home run king. I know. Like if I'm Shohei Otani or Juan Soto or or Trey Mancini, I'm going to Dave Jouse next year and saying, Excuse me, sir, can it's I like a bidding, uh, it's like a bidding war. Yeah, right. I'd like to employ your services. But Dave Jouse would never turn his back on Pete Alonso. Dave Jouse is literally a bench coach for the Mets. That's true. Yeah. Are, are pitchers allowed to throw to more than one guy? Like, can we all just agree that Dave Jouse is the best BP thrower and that he can just throw to everybody? I mean, poor Dave Jouse's arm is going to fall off yeah, by right. the second round, but that would be the best barometer for who's actually the, the best home run hitter. Right. I mean, the... The playing fields are certainly not level. Like, this is not a statistically significant experiment, right? Unless everyone's hitting up Dave Jouse. Everyone is hitting off of, like, a, you know, a BP machine. Yeah. We don't have a control group without Dave Jouse. Right, exactly. (laughs) So you don't think he'll ever lose? Not as long as he's still opting in and Dave Jouse has still got his back. I mean, I don't know. It feels like he was built perfectly for this like he's just a big dude who knows how to swing for the fences and like i'm sorry that that's not actual baseball analysis but it's not even necessarily that that pete alonzo is a like great hitter so to speak you know i mean he obviously is a is a great hitter but he's not Juan soto where or shohei otani who was like just trying to take the ball the other way or just trying to uh turn on every ball you know 
if you went by the analysis of Eduardo Perez, uh, you would have thought that the best hitters were the one that ones that were taking pitches in the home run <laughs> derby, where he was just like, that's a good take right there. Every time someone didn't swing, it was a good take. I'm like, the clock is still ticking down even if you don't swing. Yeah. It's not like it used to be where you only get 10 outs or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think that Soto, by the way, would have won if he only got 10 outs because he would have just taken, taken, taken every single pitch until he got the one that he could hit out, as yeah. evidenced by the fact that in the swing off, he went three for three, which that is an amazing insane. feat. An amazing feat. Yeah, watching, I obviously, watching um, Alonzo win was great. And everyone being on team Trey Mancini was absolutely wonderful. And it was wonderful to just see him like rake and beat out all these stars. But yeah, Soto Otani, like it was this, it was the highlight of the show really lived up to the hype. Even if Shohei Otani didn't hit massive dingers, right. And just crush the competition. Like he was still clearly having so much fun out there that it made the whole thing worth it. And like, like you tweeted out like, Oh yeah, that's right. Show uh, one Soto still exists. He's still one of the best players on the planet. I know. Um, Okay, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Home Run Derby later, so let's not spoil it all. We're going to talk about um, Alex's best friend, John Fisher, and we'll do some 3-up, 3-down later in the show. Before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Basley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. Alex, friend of the show, Alex Coffee. Wrote up your boy, John Fisher, your best bud, Uncle John, for SF Gate this past week. Um, it wasn't exactly a profile of John Fisher per se. It was more of a, a write around, a painting of a picture of how Fisher operates as a businessman, as a baseball owner, and his life experiences that has, have kind of informed him to get to this point. And this point being, running the Oakland A's like a poverty franchise while also being worth billions and billions of dollars and threatening the city of Oakland to move the team out at every opportunity imaginable. So we wanted to talk about this profile of Fisher a little bit. We also wanted to talk about the latest in a stadium updates because some stuff has changed. Yeah, man, it's been a whirlwind, like 72 hours. You could just extend that back. It's been a whirlwind 72 weeks Yeah, as far as it goes for A's stadium updates. Yeah, seriously. I mean, we're in like year five, six, seven of this process and things still feel as uncertain as they did on day one. And I I appreciated Alex's profile in that it, it really did try to take a hard look at the the guy who's running the show, who is reticent to appear at any press opportunities. He has largely handed the reins over to Dave Cavill, uh, one uh, president in Snake of the Oakland Athletics. You could say he's handed the reins over to Dave Cavill, or you could say he's just basically used him as a human shield. Depends on your perspective. 100%. I absolutely genius move on John Fisher's part to just bring in Dave Cavill to be the the face of just bad faith negotiations because now everyone hates Dave Cavill. And once you get your stadium, you can jettison him and be done with him, right? Yeah. I wonder if that's going to happen. Dave, if you're listening, come on the podcast. Get ahead of it. Yeah, defend yourself. Why should you stay? (laughs) 
But the the Fisher profile shined a light on this man and his ego, right? And where it came from and what he's looking to do with the Oakland Athletics, which, you know, if you kind of read the tea leaves from the profile, it's he's looking for some sort of legacy-defining project, yeah. right? He a is a man who inherited his wealth. Empire. Yes, a, a physical empire. I mean, like, he's, a, he's big in real estate, too. And the more that you, like, pick apart his family's holdings and the 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 companies that they're invested in and the the people who they donate to the politicians they back it becomes very clear that their web of influence is stretches much further than just a supposedly sustainable clothing brand and a and a sports franchise right for those of you listening who don't know john fisher is the son of don fisher who founded gap incorporated gap incorporated the clothing brand <laughs> We could go on down a whole rabbit hole with all the, the bad shit that Gap Incorporated has done and probably continues to do, but wealth but, generated but through fast fashion. Did you see that fashion. they're having a they're having a big sale this weekend? Oh, big okay. sale! I mean, listen, I just okay. got to just got I, I own plenty of clothes I mean, yes, from Gap <laughs> because there's no conscious consumer there's no conscious consumerism under capitalism. However, uh, wealth generated through the fast fashion industry and stealing profits from workers and all of that good stuff. Um, spun forward into acquiring the Oakland Athletics, the dark money political donations that Alex has alluded to, um, deforestation of Northern California, plenty of, you know, mustache-twirling billionaire stuff. But informative as to how Fisher has handled the whole shoot first and ask questions later element to the Oakland Athletics ballpark. Because... He clearly doesn't care about how he's how he's perceived among like normal people, normal fans. He he's a person who only cares about how he's perceived in his own myth of himself. And what you alluded to, this physical empire that he's trying to build, this this ballpark that he wants to be the crowning jewel of his achievements. There's a piece in the there's a there's a part in the profile where it talks about how Don Fisher, the the father of John asked John to manage the, the, the family's financials, manage their money because he had shown that he was adept about adept with that in school. And John Fisher is like, I don't want to do this. I want to build stuff. And I'm like, damn, if that's not the, if that's not a, a shining light on how the A's have handled this whole ballpark situation, they don't want to build on the Coliseum site. They don't want to make the practical decision. It seems like at every turn, they want to, you know, pull up from 40. They want to shoot for the moon. And the Howard Terminal location, building this beautiful downtown ballpark that everybody is going to write about and talk about and put on a pedestal as the most beautiful ballpark on planet Earth, it's him trying to stroke his own ego. And if he can't get his own ego stroked in Oakland, he'll go to Las Vegas and get it stroked or he'll go to Portland or wherever he ends up going. It's really, it's really, uh, I think indicative of how these baseball teams are run in the shadow of the principal owner of the team. Yeah. And there's obviously been a lot of debate over location and why can't the A's just build at their Coliseum site they're already at right now. And 
there was a really interesting kind of coda to that or or epilogue, if you will, because it's already been put to uh, put to bed. But Rob Manfred went on Sirius XM this past week and it's just uh, never a good combination of words. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Um and and uh, Craig Calcaterra, the prolific writer whose work we often quote and who who writes the the essential cup of coffee uh, newsletter summarized uh Manfred's admission that the the reason the Coliseum is not a viable site is because they'd rather use it as real estate. It is all about real estate and uh, development. And like I know that we just we kind of yell into the void about these things a lot that owners do. And, you know, they're all just real estate holding companies. We have, we have long been beating this drum. Right. And so it's kind of interesting to just like hear the commissioner say, say that out loud, say, yeah, no, we, we actually won't be able to make as much money if we develop on the a ballpark on the Coliseum site, we'd rather put the ballpark elsewhere do some real estate developments there and build at the Coliseum site because that's how you're going to maximize your your return on investment. It's easy as that. For a brief period of time, we created a lot of value for shareholders. Um, can you detail what's happened in the past week or two in terms of voting on the A's plan with the Oakland City Council? Sure. So the, the A's have, for, for months now, been in negotiation with the city council over a term sheet essentially that will dictate the means through us the ballpark and the de- and the subsequent development is funded um at Howard you know, Terminal at at Howard Terminal and in the kind of surrounding area um, the the condos the you know mixed use retail space all that fun stuff um, mixed use baby yes we let's love to put see that it. on a t-shirt <laughs> The the A's released a term sheet earlier this year, I believe it was in April, and since then they've been in these protracted negotiations, and the A's have kind of set this hard, soft deadline of July 20th, which is when the, the city council plans to make a non-binding vote on, on the term sheet. And so they've been haggling back and forth to to come to some sort of agreement on a term sheet that they can that they can vote on, which again is a non-binding vote. But the A's are are saying this is we need some sort of indication that the city council is behind this. Otherwise, we would like to start pursuing options elsewhere. Las Vegas, Portland, a couple Canadian cities were floated by Manfred as well, right? So he's they have the go ahead from the the commissioner. Time to, to put the A's in London, brother. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's that international impact we've been looking for. That vote is upcoming this this Tuesday, and as of Friday, we're recording this on Sunday. That was a lot of days that I just mentioned in ten seconds. Um, but as of this Sunday, they've been pretty far apart. The, the city council is looking for affordable housing to be a part of the project. How dare seems they? like a, a reasonable expectation. And, and they're also still kind of a part on these um, infrastructure financing districts, right? That basically allocate uh, whatever um, 
infrastructure real estate taxes are raised, uh, you know, property taxes that are raised because of the development of the area will will go back to the city, et cetera, et cetera. They're not close on this sort of thing. And it's starting to become, I'm starting to get a little nervous, if I'm being quite honest. I was like weirdly optimistic on Thursday evening. And yeah. by Friday afternoon, I was somewhat resigned to the the idea of the A's moving to Las Vegas because the A's are just being completely stubborn on a lot of these issues. Was that when you tweeted, have fun in the desert? That at Dave would be, Cavill? That, that, would have, that would have been the one, yes. That's when you started to lose some of that optimism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, from the 30,000-foot view, it certainly feels like the A's are setting themselves up for quote-unquote failure yeah. in Oakland. It so makes that, you wonder whether or not they're really interested in actually staying in Oakland, unless they get a massively lucrative deal from the city, which is basically what they want to do, right? They perceive themselves as having leverage because the commissioner's office is happy to let them walk, is happy to let them go elsewhere because they're you know just done with this process. That's what they keep saying. It's Howard Terminal or bust, right? And so... They perceive themselves to have some sort of leverage to say, look, you want to keep sports in Oakland. We're happy to do it if you hand us this deal as we've dictated the the terms, which it's unclear to me why the city council would be interested in negotiating like that, frankly. And it's been this way for months. Well, it's unclear to you and it's unclear to me and I'm sure it's unclear to a lot of our listeners why the city council would want to negotiate on those terms. But Time and time again, many city, many a city council has given into that artificial leverage that has been propped up by Major League Baseball, right? Like there are plenty of sweetheart deals that cities have given where they give a lot of public money to these billion dollar franchises to help, quote unquote, develop a stadium. And even if the money doesn't go directly towards, you know, paving the ground it goes towards developing the surrounding area, which means the project would have never taken off without that money. There are, there are countless examples of public money being put towards ballparks. And so from the A's perspective, they're like, why shouldn't we get the same deal? And from the Oakland city council perspective, they're like, well, we're different, you know, like we don't operate on those terms. We have laws in California that say none of this money is allowed to be for building sports arenas building fields, building stadiums, that kind of thing. So it seems that we are at a bit of an impasse. And that impasse is awkwardly happening in public. I'm thankful that it's happening in public because we at least know the shady shit that Dave Cavill and John Fisher are trying to pull here. I guess I'm just... And it always comes back to this, but I guess I'm just curious as to what the upside of moving to a new city is. It seems like I personally would not want to press the reset button on a lot of work that I've done in building my franchise in a city. The Rooted in Oakland campaign, building up this fan base, you know, putting a pretty good team on the field, although they've artificially lowered the ceiling for that team for two decades, but putting a pretty good team on the field and developing legitimately one of the better fan bases in baseball like an identity, a strong identity. You know, you and I always joke that when we go to a ballpark, whatever ballpark it is, whether it's Dodger Stadium or City Field or Kauffman Stadium, no matter, no matter where it is, there's always one dude in an A's hat. 
always is, usually aren't even playing. And this is the fan base that they want to take a shit on. I just don't get wanting to press that reset button. And maybe that's because like I'm not personally enticed by billions of dollars of gambling money that they'll probably get if they move to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. But again, spin it all the way back to the profile of John Fisher. He's interested in doing something that no one else has done. Clearly. Or he's interested in doing something that his father didn't do. Not to not to Freud this conversation up a little bit. I know, right? Let's talk John Fisher's daddy issues, shall we? <laughs> I'd rather not. That's the title of the pod right there. Let's talk John <laughs> Fisher's daddy issues. And in his in the in his perception of himself and his own story, building this ballpark with this deal is it crosses the bar. Going to Las Vegas and being the first baseball team to go there crosses that bar. And I just think that like it's such an indictment on the commissioner's office that they're like green light, thumbs up, all good by us. Sure, go ahead. It's such an indictment. Why do you say it's an indictment? You, just in in that they are willing to to walk from an established market with an established fan base? Yes. Because like you you can't on one hand say we care about the fans of the A's in the East Bay. We care about keeping the A's in Oakland. And then on the other hand, say, but not enough to keep them as one of the 30 teams in baseball. Right. Not enough to compromise with the city council to find a resolution that would keep baseball in Oakland, even if it doesn't line John Fisher's pockets as much as an even sweeter heart deal would. Right. Like, yeah. And it's, it's also like, it's a lack of imagination on MLB's side. Like, we, we always say this it's, it's a lack of imagination about growing the game. Right. Because what you're doing, if you let the team walk, is you're constricting the amount of people who might be fans of baseball. Like, for every fan that becomes a fan of the Las Vegas A's, you lost two fans who were fans of the Oakland A's. And you can't put a new team in Oakland where that team used to be without it feeling like the stepkid team. Like without it feeling like the team that shouldn't have been there, that shouldn't have left. If the NBA puts a new team in Seattle, I'm sure that that, that fan base will embrace it, but they're never going to be the Sonics. Like they're never going to be, the Sonics is literally a new team. And so instead of saying, hey, our profits are through the roof. Our revenue is through the roof. What can we do to try to gain more fans right now? We could add two teams, one in Las Vegas, one in Portland. And we could tell John Fisher, don't uh, quite Justin, line your Justin pockets. Justin Timberlake's not getting that team, huh? That's All right, whatever. We could add one in <laughs> Las Vegas and one in Nashville, just for my man, Justin Timberlake. So he doesn't write a 33-song album about us. <laughs> but... We could tell John Fisher, hey, the combo of the deal that you do get from Howard Terminal, which is favorable enough to the city council that it gets a yes vote, and two expansion franchises also bringing in more revenue that you will also get in the short term, will then say, hey, man, you'll be all right, John Fisher. Instead of doing that, they're just like, no, it's okay. Just set the entire A's fan base in Oakland on fire. We don't, we don't, don't really care. Yeah, I mean, I tweeted something to this effect uh, 
this past week, but it feels like the A's really kind of their their plan to negotiate in public in order to put pressure on the city council kind of backfired because they they went public with with their negotiations, but also made it very clear they were not willing to negotiate. And I think that whereas six months ago, there were a lot of A's fans who were like, look, we need to get this deal done. The city council should compromise, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, like, I still have faith in them to kind of work this sort of thing out. And at least from my perspective, being talking with A's fans, being on A's Twitter, et cetera, it seems like people are kind of (laughs) like fed up at this point, you know, and saying, guys, cut the shit. You say you're rooted in Oakland. Back up that talk. Otherwise, what's the what's the point of all this? So it's it's disheartening to see. I think you you know bringing it back to your question earlier. What's the what's the point of undoing all of this hard work to go elsewhere? And I think it's that point that you also made, which is that many cities are happy to give a a nice cushy deal in order to bring in that uh you know that sports revenue so to speak right in order to say yeah i brought a sports team to my city looks great on a mayor's resume yeah it does and it seems like the las vegas mayor is like on board there's so many structural forces here right like there's it all it all comes back to the fact that like owning these sports franchises is so lucrative in the first place like that there is so much to be gained so there is so much harm that people are willing to do to gain that. And it's just, it's, it's really disappointing. And I feel bad for you. I feel bad for A's fans. Even if it ends up staying, even if the A's end up staying in Oakland, it's just a really ugly thing to watch unfold. And it's a really stark reminder, not that people really should need a reminder at this point if they give a shit and are paying attention, that the team doesn't really give a shit about them. <laughs> it just doesn't, they just don't care. Okay, that's fine. Uh, that's what we sign up for, right? Loving the sport that doesn't love you back. We can create a world where we bypass that. We bypass the 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 organizational side of the team and we just root for the players. That's what we're trying to do every week here on this podcast. We're doing our mm-hmm. best. I'll still love Matt Chabot if the A's move to Las Vegas. I will. Unless he comes out and is like, I wanted to move to Las Vegas. Fuck Oakland. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, Matt Chapman's not going to be on A's long enough, whether yeah. <laughs> they move to Las Vegas or not. Ooh, what a doozy. Um, okay, speaking of A's players who we stand at the moment, um, there was a piece in The Athletic uh, that came out recently written by uh, Andy McCullough about the latest in CBA negotiations, what the players' union is thinking. Um, and I wanted to just briefly hit on it because there's a couple quotes in there, specifically from Chris Bassett, um, alluding to what we had kind of theorized about a month ago about I actually don't remember when we put this podcast out maybe six weeks ago maybe a month ago where we were like we were discussing has anything changed in the 2021 season as to how we're perceiving the upcoming labor fight and the answer to that question was no not really nothing has drastically changed and that's kind of what this piece is hitting at we're kind of all in a holding pattern feeling each other out the real work that needs to be done is going to happen later in the season and especially once the World Series ends in trying to hammer out a deal um, as this upcoming CBA expires. But Bassett's quote really stuck out to me as a reason for optimism. 
because he says, how long teams have control over you is too much for me. If we're going, if we're going to a league that's so young, then we definitely need to adjust the scales of salaries and all that stuff. And I mean, sure, this is like a talking point. This is just Bassett kind of throwing this out as like something that the, the players' union has been thinking about. But team control is really the biggest weapon that owners have utilized in this last CBA. And specifically the relationship between how valuable team control is in comparison to signing free agents. It's like a vicious cycle that we've watched unfold over the last five years or so, where because you can gain so much value on a team-controlled player who is artificially having their salary suppressed, you can then say, I'm not going to pursue free agents, which means all these free agents are also having their salaries suppressed. And so now we're in a world where no one is making the money that they should be, and that world is leading to salaries have gone down for three straight years the first time that's happened since the last strike. So nothing really big to hit on here, Alex, other than that shout out to the A's player rep, Chris Bassett, for telling it like it is. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to call out Nick Castellanos' quote uh, further down in the article. And so that'll make it a borrow ball game, right? (laughs) Boo. (laughs) Bringing Twitter memes to our podcast as if we weren't on brand enough. Um, McCullough writes, uh, Reds outfielder Nick Castellanos raised a point which has rankled him, and that's that the owners and executives of the sport are relentless when it comes to demoting players or snubbing them for promotions or battling them in arbitration if their performance dips. But the owners and executives are not judged by the same standards if they miss the playoffs or don't even mount a credible attempt to reach them, and that they're still rewarded through things like high draft picks and revenue sharing. And Castellanos says, us as competitors... We have consequences for losing or underperforming. I wish that every single person across baseball would have the same, just to keep the integrity of the game at its highest. The purity and the intensity and just the commitment to winning can be watered down if there are no consequences for losing. And he's right. And he strikes on a point that you don't necessarily see a lot of baseball players making because I think it's a little, it's slightly more controversial which is that teams maybe should be punished if they're not trying to win. If they are actively trying to lose, maybe they shouldn't be given a reward, so to speak, right? If the A's are not spending money, maybe they shouldn't benefit from something like revenue sharing. And again, it's it's hard to say how you litigate this sort of thing in a collective bargaining agreement, right? Like there's no way the owners are just going to agree to penalties for in the system that currently reward them handsomely like that's it's not going to happen yeah the i mean precedent is the biggest thing in all legal matters but in collective bargaining as well like if it is in the last contract changing it is a point of contention yeah if no one exerts any leverage then the cba just stays the same so both sides have to find those points of leverage to exert to say hey this is become a problem over the course of this last agreement we're going to use the power that we have through collectivity collectivism to change that and the owners are going to say well we're going to exert the the power that we have on account of owning the teams and everybody being incredibly sympathetic towards us including the uh people who write laws in this country to say no and so you know to castellanos's point later you know 
McCullough asks him if that could be rectified in bargaining, and his in, his knee jerk answer is to say yes, but he's not really sure how. And does that does that mean like if you finish in the bottom third of payroll, you don't get revenue sharing? That's never going to happen. That's what revenue sharing was designed for, right? And it's very hard to tell owners that they can't revenue share. More likely, it would be what you said. It'd be like you'd have to pay a penalty for for finishing with the worst record in baseball or something like that. But that's never going right. to happen. I mean, that's never going to happen because there would of... be so many loopholes around that. Like, what if all of your players just got hurt? That doesn't really seem... I don't even think that's fair. And then suddenly the teams are going to start blaming the players for all that stuff and it's just going to exacerbate all of right. these tensions between yeah. the two sides. Well, I wonder if... I mean, you know, we talked with Randy Wilkins um, at the beginning of the season and he made his his radical suggestion to abolish the draft completely. And while I don't think we're close to a future in which that is the case, I think there are ways to adjust that, right? The NBA has a lottery-type system where just because you are the worst team in basketball does not mean you are going to get the, the best pick. And it's, a, it's slightly different in baseball because I think that the, the talent levels are... Things are a little smoothed out a little more in the in the in the first, in the round, first especially. round especially yeah yeah you might get the best player at 27 like mike trout was not drafted first overall but it also means that owners can't point to the draft point to say oh well we're just trying to rebuild right because we have a guaranteed first overall pick third overall pick whatever whatever it is we're going to use this opportunity of losing now to win later right so if you say hey we you're not guaranteeing any sort of win later. You guys actually have to make some sort of concerted effort. I don't know, man. Abolishing the draft would be great for that, but it would also be really, and nobody would agree to it. No. The lottery system is interesting. It's effective in the NBA. The changes they have made to combat tanking in the NBA, I think have worked really well because they've smoothed out the odds that you get in that lottery even more now. So if you're anywhere in the eight worst records, you might have the top pick. So it avoids you from wanting to lose. It discourages you from wanting to lose like 70 of 82 games that they play in the NBA. It, however, does not discourage you from if you're around 500, just like quitting for the rest of the season. That still goes on in the NBA. I think that will always go on. And it, it happens in baseball too. I mean, you the trade deadline's coming up in two weeks. We're going to see a lot of that. Yeah, you have to make a commitment. One way or the other. And ultimately, like, that's okay. I think that that's okay. That, that is okay. Like, teams admitting they're not going to win this season is like, that's a fine admission to make. I think the trouble is more if year in and year out, you're basically saying, yeah, it's not going to happen. The A's coming out and saying, you know, we cannot be competitive until we have a new stadium. Really? That's yeah. interesting because last time I looked at the standings, the A's were right there. It's been pretty successful over the last few years. It's so hard to parse, too, because in baseball, teams are not saying we're not going to try this year or they're not tanking year in and year out from day one because they know that over the course of 162 games, a lot of injuries could happen and you might just wind up having the best record in baseball when you were projected to finish fourth, like the San Francisco Giants. However, what teams do in baseball that doesn't happen quite as much in other sports is they say, we're going to go in at a five out of 10 on effort. 
And we're just going to hope that everybody else falls to the wayside and we just happen to luck into 90 wins. And that is so hard to parse as a fan because it's like so lukewarm. Like at least when you were a fan of the process Sixers, you knew they were going to suck. And if you really, if it was your priority, you could check out for a couple of years. Like if you're a fan of Cleveland, you kind of have to hang around until May every year and then decide if the team is going to stab you in the back. Yeah, yeah. It's always an interesting question in my head, right? What is, is it worse to be a fan of a baseball team that you know, you know, you're a Pirates fan and you know, coming into the year, things are not looking great. You have kind of a bleak outlook, but like you at least have solace in that. Or like you said, are you a Cleveland fan where you kind of just don't know? (laughs) It seems like they're not really trying, but they give you just enough hope to end up crushing it in the end. Mm Mm-hmm. That hurts almost more. I agree. Uh, let's take a few voicemails before we do three or three down. Hey, guys. Um, it's Austin again. Uh, just kind of basking in the afterglow of my first All-Star game, All-Star week experience out here in Denver. Um, it was very cool. I'm very glad I got to do it and see some of you know the most amazing baseball players probably in the history of baseball all playing on the same field. Very cool. Um, there were a couple things about the experience that bugged me, and the first of which was the home run derby format. It seemed like this weird, like pseudo competitive balance thing, where like someone who like never had been watching baseball was like, "Oh, obviously we'll seed the tournament based on who has the most home runs for the first half of the season." But anyone who's been watching baseball knows that half a season's worth of stats are pretty much useless as far as who's going to be good and exciting and interesting to watch. Soto versus Otani in round one was like, it was exciting and great, but it was also disappointing because that meant one of them was going to be out in round one, which I thought was disappointing. No shade to Matt Olson or Trey Mancini who had a crazy home run derby, but like one of those guys, each of those guys should have probably faced someone a little more like big, whatever. I don't know. The other thing was the timed rounds. I know this has been going on for a few years now, I guess, but like, in person, it was really hard to watch the game or to watch every single hit. You felt like there were as many as three baseballs in the air at one time. And I didn't, I felt like I was missing out on like huge dingers uh, because they had to get all their hits in within three minutes, which again, I understand why, they do it, why they're doing it, but was a little bit of a strange experience in person. The final thing that I noticed that was a little upsetting was I'm a big collector of souvenir cups and these ones are super cool, but they're not dishwasher safe. And, like, it's a souvenir cup. I want to, like, use it for years. I don't want to just, like, put it up on the shelf and look at it. Like, can't MLB just let us have one nice thing one single time? I don't know. Anyway, that was upsetting. Everything else is super cool. Um, thanks. Have a good day. Won't MLB think of the souvenir cup collectors, Alex? This is it's hazardous, really. This is peak Austin right here. Saying that half a season of home run hitting is completely irrelevant. Saying the souvenir cups that they sent are not dishwasher safe. (laughs) First of all, okay, wait. I just could not disagree with him more here on both of his points. The dishwasher safe thing, I agree. I love my dishwasher. (laughs) I love using it. But the first two points, number one being how it was seated. How how else do you want them to seat it? Do Do you really want MLB to decide who they think should match up? They clearly don't know any better than than we know as fans. So do you think the fans should seed it by vote? 
that there's a lot of shenanigans anytime the fans vote on anything. It seems like the most obvious and fair way is how many home runs did you actually hit in real baseball games? And it's unfortunate that Soto and Otani got matched up in the first round, but that's how it works in the playoffs. So it feels fair to do it that way to me. Yeah, I mean, I I get the the gripe, right? Because you want to see the 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 best players primed to hit the biggest dingers, and you want to watch them as much as you can, right? So if we could fast track Shohei Otani to the finals, like, sure, man, I. I'd love it. I'd love to just watch Shohei Otani take BP. Um, but like you said, I don't know that there's a fairer way to line these sorts of things up. And it does also make for some really interesting competition. Um, like the Olsen Mancini matchup turned out to be really fun. Yeah. Really close. And Olsen misses by, by just one. Yeah. Not even not even like he misses the hope he misses by like a couple seconds. Unfortunately, you know? I had ten thousand dollars on medals and winning, so I didn't think it was very fun, but you know. And that's kind of you know bullshit. They were they were fudging the rules a little bit. Did you see when the ball left Mancini's pitcher's hand? Uh the clock was at zero. I mean, no integrity. This is this when we talk about integrity of the game, this, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah, this is exactly what I mean. <laughs> Second point. Um the the timer is perfect. It's just it's perfect. Austin is wrong about this. The outs the outs thing was not it, and the timer yeah. is much better. It creates much more dramatic moments. Um, it reward. I guess it's less like baseball in that it doesn't. It rewards you for how many swings you can you can get in, not which swings you decide to take, which is more like the actual game but this is a different event i mean it's the home run derby it's nothing like real baseball it's just for the yeah it's for the boys you know it's for the right <laughs> it's for the fans it does uh, on that point i'll say a couple things it does afford the players who have more stamina to do better right a guy like shohei otani who might i remind you listeners of the podcast he both pitches and hits no um throughout the whole season are you serious I think that can maybe get a little bit tiring. You might get a little worn out from that. And it was kind of clear that Otani was like gassed as, as he should be. Yeah. That's point number one. Point number two is if you're going to have a timer, the, the, the ESPN broadcast folks need to keep up. You cannot pick up the, the home run like after it's traveled three quarters of its distance. Yeah. Like I don't I I'm I don't want to watch the end of the the home runs. Austin not, that, yeah. Austin thinking that it was confusing to watch in person is hilarious because it was indecipherable on television. Yes. You saw the 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 guy swinging and hit the ball off the bat and on the other side of the screen you saw the other home run landing and then they would just like switch Randomly, announcers clearly had no idea what was going on, so they were not helping. Half the right. balls that you didn't lefties get, hit looked foul because of you the didn't camera get angle. Distances on any of them, it was just like, do they decide to tell you how far that one went? I know, the round would end, and they would be like, Juan Soto hit one 524 feet, and I was like, which one was yeah, that? I'm like, what? I don't how. I all I saw was like, it just looked like he was hitting them to center, you know, and yeah. they were just sneaking over the fence. That's what I saw. Yes, but I would love. How would you? How would you feel about like a? I mean, they definitely you need to do some sort of split screen action, but like maybe you have a camera set up like 
behind home plate, like yeah, so raised a little bit. It. Yeah. So you can just watch the, and you know, they have the ability to add the little like tail to the end of the ball. My favorite actually, thing was like, when they would switch camera angles and they left the tail on. So it would just be like a shot of the crowd with like the home run tail right. over like the fans faces. <laughs> like oops that wasn't supposed to look like that yeah again this is big like well if i was in charge here's how i'd run it and again like i think that filming baseball is probably one of the harder sports to be a cameraman of because you have to pick up on the ball very quickly so i cannot profess to pretend i would i would do any better but guys come on this is supposed to be the the marquee event of this sport this summer. You like, know what I didn't try? I didn't try tuning into the StatCast broadcast. That might have been better. I didn't try that. If there are any listeners listening who think that the StatCast broadcast was better, write in, call in, 785-422-5881. Let us know if you enjoyed that more than it appears that Alex and I enjoyed the actual broadcast. Uh, any other thoughts on All-Star Week before we get off this topic? We talked a little bit up top about Pete Alonso. Uh, you just mentioned Otani pitching and hitting. Um, any other big grand thoughts that you want to share? People have already kind of got their takes out, so we didn't really want to focus too much on it. Yeah, not a ton of t- I mean, it's I enjoy the week not so much for the competitions themselves, which are fun, but I enjoy it almost more just seeing like a bunch of guys come together who are very clearly like mostly buddies and just hanging out, just dudes having fun. With their families. I like seeing who is actually friends among right. the different teams. Yeah. Like, I loved seeing Tatis and Vlad Guerrero Jr. and Machado hanging out. But Tatis and Machado hanging out at All-Star Weekend was like, okay, these guys are actual real-life friends. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, very easily, you could say, okay, hey, I'm going to go, um, you know, Machado, who has played for a couple of the teams. I'm sure, like, you know is friendly with Mancini and yeah, that was a cool moment when Machado mm-hmm. came out there and gave Mancini a hug. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I do like, I love seeing the reunions, you know, when, uh, when Nolan Arenado is out there, like, you know, hyping up Trevor's story. I'm like, Oh, uh-huh. I yeah. want Nolan Arenado to hype me up. Nolan Arenado call into the voicemail and hype up Alex. Okay. Next voicemail. Hey guys. Uh, not very long time listener, first time caller. Um, came across you all purely on the labor side of my timeline. Um, don't have a ton of baseball content on there, but was very happy to to find you guys' show. And now I, I wait for it eagerly every week. Um, I have uh, a bit of a grab bag. My my rule change apropos of nothing, and I'm sure it would be disastrous, but I guess I would curious to hear just how disastrous it would stand to be is what it would look like for all runs that cross home plate before the third out in a play was completed if those runs were to count um you know whether that's a double play with one out and someone who was on third or pop fly that someone reaches home on while it's in the air just how bad would that look? I'm sure it wouldn't be any fun for catchers and would result in a lot of like balls out of play and whatnot, but I'm curious to hear y'all think of that. And before my time runs out, I am going to advocate super quickly for my man, Rafael Devers. Uh, such a joy to watch. Um, someone that good on third base who's still, you know, running off his baby fat and he's also 
uh, sicko in the batter's box. So we need some more respect to my man's name. But thanks again for all you guys do. Um, also waiting for more Unionize the Miners merch that doesn't fall into either the Dodgers or Phillies uh, insignia buckets because I don't know if I can get behind either of those two teams. But anyway, take care of yourselves. Appreciate y'all. Rafael Devers is a sicko in the box. We heard that uh, the Yankees were savages in the box, and I'll see you one better, Alex. Rafael Devers is a sicko in the box. To be fair, he legitimately is. Yeah, he's fucking Dude is a star. amazing. He's amazing. He's amazing. Um, what do you think of the rule change? <laughs> it's chaotic. Yeah. I mean, way more squeeze bunts. Way more squeeze bunts. That's what you yeah. would see. Well, I think you probably see way more errors, too, because you have guys trying to rush throws, right? I mean, I'm is the suggestion here that any run that crosses the plate, even on the third out, like like no matter the timing of it, that it counts, or if the run crosses the plate before the out is made, you know? So if there's a runner on third and a ground ball to short and the shortstop gets it over to first in time, does that run still count? Is it the kind of thing where like, if you have Billy Hamilton on third and he just happens to score on that ground ball? I think, I think the suggestion is until the moment the third out is squeezed, any run counts. So if you hit like a mile high can of corn to the second baseman, the guy on first might score. If he's if he's hauling ass, <laughs> so yeah, it would be chaotic. I don't I don't hate it. I mean, it it wouldn't fundamentally change baseball. Like we had a we had a listener call in and say, "What if you could choose to run to third instead of first the moment that you hit the ball?" That would change baseball more than this rule suggestion. I'm perfectly yeah, although fine. This li- would change baseball like <laughs> a a great amount. Yeah, can you imagine the run scoring environment? Well, you want to prioritize speed. This is one way to do it. That is true. <laughs> I mean, it basically just says, I mean, I appreciate that third outs can now be productive outs. Although it kind of defeats the purpose of even trying to 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 get the out at that point. You know, it really devalues the, the, the value of the third out of the inning. Somehow this would just end up in more strikeouts. Like we would prioritize Absolutely. strikeout pitchers even more than we do now because right. then the batters ball would are trying never be harder play. than ever to put the ball in play, which means they're striking out more than ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, inverse effect there. Thank you for calling in. Um, good idea. If anyone else has rule suggestions to make baseball more chaotic, you can call in. And uh, if anyone else wants to share us among the labor side of their timeline, that would be much appreciated. Uh, okay. Final voicemail. Hey guys, this is Aaron from Albuquerque. I uh, love the show. Shout out to my cousin for getting me into it. Anyways, I'm a Dodger fan. And while there's plenty of things to complain at, I want to complain about the AAA situation. So how the Dodgers have ruined AAA for me. Uh, the Albuquerque Isotopes and Dukes were longtime AAA affiliates of the Dodgers, of course. Even after we lost our team, we got one back. They came back to town, and even during the McCord eras, they were, hey, you know, we'll have, we'll have the AAA in Albuquerque, which was great. Winning teams, fun to watch, fun to go to. Beer prices were too much, but tickets are right. Then, in 2014, Dodgers were like, oh, you know, Al- Albuquerque, too, uh, too hard to 
evaluate pitchers there, right? Too tough. So we got to move. Ah, that sucks, but yeah, fair enough, right? Except, is that why they moved? Because they then proceeded to buy the Oklahoma City Redhawks and have their AAA affiliate in Oklahoma City. So when that happened, my first thought was, wait, did you leave because of the pitching, or did you want the gate receipts? And as a result of all of that, we have been saddled with the Colorado Rockies as our major league affiliate. I don't think I need to talk about how depressing uh, that is to go see a game. still fun to go to Isotopes Park, and there's still fun players like Talkman, Noel Cuevas, uh, Romeo Tapia who come through, but it's definitely not as fun as seeing guys that are going to be playing in my major league organization. And I'm mad because I'm pretty sure that the Dodgers just moved because they wanted gate receipts and beer, I don't know, maybe beer prices or something. Anyways, guys, uh, keep up the good work. Uh, go Dodgers, but not that one guy. First of all, I just want to say that we should become more comfortable uh, couching our fandom in exceptions. Yeah. Uh, go Dodgers, except for that one guy, is like a... Yep. It's an effective it's way where of we are saying right now. that. It's very That's short and sweet. State of, state of the sport. Yeah. Um, this is a, so this is a specific issue that Aaron is having. However. I do think that it highlights a a more general issue, which is that teams just decide on a whim based on their own financial interests with no respect or acknowledgement of the local minor league communities, how it's affecting them. Yeah, especially when you consider the the really tight-knit relationships that a lot of minor league teams, a lot of franchises have with their local community. I think that far too often gets just tossed aside in favor of can we you know make a profit somewhere else? Which like you know again that's the, this is the just kind of the the nature of the sport, and we saw it with the contraction of the minor leagues uh, this you know last year. But it it still doesn't make these moves hurt any any less, does it? You still don't really ever get used to it. I think teams are completely either unaware or indifferent to the fact that like if you have a minor league team in a place that doesn't have a major league natural rooting affiliation, you just created fans of your major league team. So when you move that minor league team out, you might be losing fans of your major league team again. The natural fandom creation power of major league teams, I think is underestimated by the major league teams themselves. And as evidenced by the fact that they just moved minor league teams on a whim and they don't they don't care. Yeah, I, I mean there was discourse over the last week about the MLB draft, for example, right? And its ability or inability to create fans, to engage fans, right? And part of the problem is that you you uh you see a player get drafted to your favorite team and then they disappear for three or four years as they kind of go through the development system. And there are ways to bridge that gap, right? There are ways to actually get fans invested in those in those stages because it's fun to watch future stars on a small stage where you actually have feel like there's some sort of intimate connection there. Yeah. And like you said, it then not only builds goodwill between you know you and a, and a player, you and your a minor league team, but also in a major league franchise because it's it's really awesome to say, hey, I saw so and so at the minor league level. 
when, you know, when he was getting paid poverty wages. Loved that. Yeah, that was tight. That was yeah, real that was tight. Awesome. I got to bear cool. witness to his labor being exploited. That was sick, bro. <laughs> that was so sick. I mean, I think there's a there's a very systematic um obscuring of the minor leagues for very obvious reasons. We're all in this if together. We're being quite honest. Uh okay, there were two calls that I also didn't want to play because they were outdated because we didn't get to them because we took a week off. And then also we had a few other ones to get to last week. I wanted to acknowledge them really quickly and apologize for not getting to their calls. The first one was from uh, Chris, who called to talk about the Chicago Cubs again. Called so long ago that the Cubs were still on a hot streak and playing really well. My apologies. We discussed the Rickets in depth last week. They are pieces of shit. And I'm sorry that they own your baseball team. Uh, the second one was from Nico called about uh, Trevor Bauer and we we kind of said everything that we wanted to say about the situation and hold to that last week but thank you for calling in and um, we hope that you will continue to call in and voice your frustrations and anxieties about your baseball team uh, because we'd be happy to answer those in the future uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back three up three down Today's episode of Tipping Pitches is brought to you by Horse, a podcast about basketball that I absolutely love. The best part about it is that it's not even about basketball. It's about the ridiculous stories and the internet drama and the biggest and baddest personalities out there today that come from the world of basketball, but maybe it's not about what happens on the court, you know? You might recognize that from this podcast, Tipping Pitches. Uh, Host Adam and Mike, friends of the show, want the world to know how unbelievable the history and culture of basketball is. They are here to fight gatekeeping and prove that it's entertaining for everybody to follow. From super fans to folks who've never cared about sports before at all, if you don't care about basketball, this podcast can still be for you. It might be a shot-by-shot breakdown of the classic song, Get Your Head in the Game, from High School Musical, or maybe just a thorough discussion of the best and worst food at NBA arenas. The boys over at Horst have you covered. New episodes release every other Monday. Just search HORSE, H-O-R-S-E, all capital, for stylization purposes, in your podcast app or check out horsehoops.com. Because basketball is so much more than just what happens on the court. All right, Alex. You know, I'm going to shout out the people who tweeted in to us in our minorly in our unionize the minor shirts before three up three down this week i'm gonna give them that honor because i always forget until the very very end um thank you to it me geriatric millennial phil's fan thank you it me geriatric millennial phil's <laughs> fan you don't have your real name in your twitter and i respect that um Unionize the Miners and also the Galaxy on Star Wars night, it appears, at Reading, at the Reading Phillies. So, very cool. Uh, thanks to Allie. And thank you to Aaron. Much appreciated. Okay, three up, three down time. Let's start with down. And I will go first. Yes, take it away. There's, a, there's an order to this. Fucking Jacob deGrom's elbow and forearm. The dreaded forearm tightness has come for the most important baseball player in my life and potentially maybe ever in my life. He was scratched 
from his start post All-Star break. He is not throwing at all until the forearm tightness goes away. He is going to the 10-day IL at minimum, and I'm very upset about it. Because also, Francisco Lindor is going to be out for quite a bit with what appears to be a right oblique problem. And the Mets are really, really shitting the bed against the Pirates. So all of this, none of, none of that other stuff can even measure up to the fact that DeGrom's elbow might have a problem. And I am praying to whatever single god there is out there, if you believe in that, or multiple gods there are, or baseball gods, or whatever, the force to cure Jacob DeGrom's many issues this season. <laughs> is there a injury notification that makes your stomach sink more than this pitcher has forearm tightness? Because that is like the one where whenever I see it, no matter what the team says, no matter what the yeah, <laughs> doctors no, no say, what the players damage. say, whatever, no structural damage, I kind of don't care. There is never a good outcome for you know throwing arm forearm tightness. No, because these guys... It, I mean, it's a precursor to something worse, to a lot of stress being put on places that should not have stress put on them. For those of you who are listening, I hate to even jinx it at this point, but forearm tightness is usually thought of as a precursor to UCL issues, elbow issues that lead to Tommy John. I'm going to knock on wood really quickly. And then I'm going to say that at this point in the state of modern medicine as it relates to baseball, something that would worry me more is like shoulder pain, you know, because I feel like we understand elbow injuries much more than we used to. And the shoulder injuries like thoracic outlet syndrome are the ones that really kill careers. That's what killed Matt Harvey's career. That's true. Although they're also more rare, I think. Yes. I, 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 right. I, I agree with what you're saying. I mean, there are certainly more dire injuries to get, but weirdly, the, the forearm tightness, in part because we know what the outcome usually is. Yeah, it's the frequency the with that, which it becomes the next thing. Right, exactly. When I get the alert that AJ Puck uh was scratched because of forearm tightness that's when i say cool see you in a year and a half yeah but to lose the i mean uh i, I don't even i, I don't want to think about it before it happens but let's just move on let's move on I know. first down yeah. for you no. first down for me um i i know we already had our kind of all-star game all-star break discussion but i just would like to bring this up here because it did frustrate me to no end and that is discourse about players not attending the All-Star game. <laughs> I, too, because, have another thing on my list about the All-Star game. So I'm glad that we said we were going to get it all out and then did not. Right. Exactly. Got to save the, the best for last. Um, there was a not insignificant amount of, quote unquote, sports pundits who were very irked that some baseball players decided against attending the All-Star game despite being voted in by the fans. Players such as the now-injured Jacob deGrom, who opted out of the All-Star game because of his injury history this season, and because why would you play in an exhibition game that is meaningless if you don't have to? But The only discourse worse than people saying that everybody should go to the All-Star game is what would have happened if Jake went and hurt his elbow at the All-Star game. Jesus, can you imagine Joel Sherman 
from the New York Post. Play the heads. <laughs> play, yes, play, play the, the heads. It's been a while since we've read from a New York Post article, and I'm and we're not going to do a whole uh, reading of this, but I just want to wanted to bring it up because it felt like it it encapsulated the the whole debate around this, the very pointless debate around this. Uh, he the headline is MLB All Star Game opt outs put fans last. Mm. Sure. <laughs> There's a lot of things that put fans last. Uh, yeah, right. There are. He starts this with one, two, three, four, five paragraphs that justify why players often skip the All Star games. He says, "If I were Jacob Degrom or ran the Mets, I would be understanding if he skipped the All Star game." He gets why Judge Guerrero and Tatis. Are skipping the derby. He justifies why the Astros aren't really interested in attending the All Star Game, given controversy from fans. He recognizes that many players feel banged up after the first half. Did you know that injuries are spiking this season? And he says uh, that he appreciates that the Players Association has suggested that it's been quite a year and a half, and it has taken a mental toll on a lot of players, whether it's COVID outbreaks or injuries. And you know, it's a you get a break. This is your this is your paid vacation in the middle of the year. You know, but he says it's like the you know the Stephen A. tweet. Like, yes, I will acknowledge that the Holocaust was bad. Skip. (laughs) Of course. But he says, he says, individually, each decision makes sense for the player, for his team. Okay. So that's the end of the column, right? Dude, (laughs) it makes sense for everyone involved. It's my favorite thing about every New York Post column, specifically every sports column in the Post, is like they make the whole argument against them for the reader like the entire thing and it's always much more convincing than the actual argument that they'd make because the actual argument that they always end up making and i know what you're about to say is just going to be some bullshit where it's like i feel like it should be the opposite Mm -hmm. bobby how is that good for the fans and the game if everyone thought this way we would have an empty course field on monday and tuesday this is such a collective middle finger to a fan base who vote for starters who watch the game, who care. You know, I feel scorned. Frankly, Fernando, the fact that Fernando Tatis chose not to play in the All-Star game. The home run derby. He did play set, in the All-Star game. I mean, I, the, the fact that Fernando Tatis uh, didn't play in the home run derby, it's basically like he just took a shit on my desk. Yeah. He basically just punched me in the face. What's worse, John Fisher hijacking the A's out of Oakland or Fernando Tatis not playing in the home run derby. I'll let you, no, I'll let you decide. I don't even want you to answer. Just marinate with that for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Convincing fact, convincing fact, convincing fact, convincing fact, convincing fact. Rhetorical question. I just wrote a New York Post column. What about the way it makes me feel? (laughs) I just wrote a New York Post column for you. All right. uh, My next down is... Look, I don't even want to make this a Joe Buck thing, but national broadcasters getting to do every big baseball event. All of them. Because Joe Buck was clearly not in baseball mode. He was not ready. Like, you can say that you don't mind him in the World Series and the playoffs or whatever, and he might lock in. And during an actual baseball game, it makes sense. But an All-Star weekend, like, this one's for the fans, man. This one is for 
This one is for the people who want to have a really good time. And I just don't think that he's the right guy. And it's not even necessarily his fault. Like, it's the fact that local broadcasters know the game and know the ins and outs of a specific season within the season much better than any national broadcaster coming in from on high ever will, being parachuted in. Because Buck was just like clashing with the energy of the event the entire broadcast. And whether that be like, it felt like there were like preordained talking points, which goes against the spirit of baseball, or whether that be awkward interviews with players who clearly didn't really want to be talking to him. Like it it just didn't work. And I think that if, if we're going to have one event where we actually throw a bone to some of the local broadcasters, some of the local broadcasters, I say, because some of them are very, very bad. Let's make it all-star. Let's make it the all-star game. All-star week. Because that is where it's supposed to be the most fun and the least serious. And you can say that Joe Buck is good when it's supposed to be serious and big moments like the World Series. That's fine. That can be your opinion. But for this, it just didn't work for me. Yeah. I mean, being a national broadcaster is hard, right? Because you basically have to parachute in and pretend to know everything about the the two teams that you are broadcasting for about i can't imagine what it's like to have to broadcast about two teams that just didn't even exist up until this point and are comprised of all 30 players of from every single baseball team even i'm watching i'm like the pirates have two guys in the starting lineup of the yeah, national right? you're league. Like, I was like brian newman no really way. i mean kevin newman brian reynolds brian. see that's the thing right <laughs> there you go amazing Freudian slip it just didn't work it didn't work and that's my down okay next down for you let's not waste any more time all right well um speaking of pirates bobby do you remember earlier this season when the baseball gaff to end all baseball gaffs happened i do i'm of course referring to one will craig and javi baez stopping the baseball world in its tracks to watch just the uh, the blunder of a lifetime. A brain fart, you could say, happens happens to the best of us. Will Craig, the, the, the first baseman who was at the center of the play, uh, starring opposite Javi Baez, was designated for assignment uh, by the Pirates in June and subsequently signed with the, the Kiwoom heroes over in the, the KBO. And he talked with the the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette about this decision and how the the play somewhat informed at least part of his decision to to go and and play overseas. He says, there are times when it hits me and I'm like, did that really happen? I'm a really good defender. I am. Everyone who's played with me knows that, but I feel like that play defined me. I didn't want that to be the case. Man. That's another thing that went into my decision to go over there. I need to almost start over in a way. And it's so sad. It just it really hit hit me in the gut, you know, because I think that it's it's really easy to kind of forget that there are like human beings on the other side of these plays. And and I think I said it at the time, right? But like we've all done just something stupid at work because you're like, oh, damn, I forgot how to do this certain thing. Right, you're you're so used to working in a routine, and then someone throws you a curveball, and and you your your brain just stops working 
for a, for a quick second. But it's, it's even harder when that happens on a stage in front of millions of people. And I, I admire his kind of his openness about this, uh, of how he struggled with it. And, you know, I'm not going to speak for him about whether it's still weighing on him today or will for years to come, but it never fully leaves my mind that sometimes when we're dunking on players, it's like, oh, this is just a dude who was like out there trying his best. I think I've said to you before that like watching the playoffs for me is so hard, even when I don't have a team that's involved because I kind of just just want want them all to like do really well. Yeah. You know, like I don't like seeing a pitcher get rocked in the world. I don't like seeing Trent Grisham let the ball go under his glove. Yeah. Soy boy. Alex is back. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's really well said. Participation trophies for all. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's anyway. I'm wishing Will Craig all the best. He's gonna like win KBO MVP, probably. Yeah. I mean, technically, I believe the KBO just shut down because of COVID. But um, you know, when when they come back, he's a minor league gold glover. Like he's not a bad defender. No, you know? No. Um, speaking of COVID, which is still happening. Mm, yeah. Uh my next down, and we don't need to spend a ton of time on this because, like, the information is just the information. There's no real take to have on this other than just how disappointing it is and how frustrating it is and how repetitive it feels. But the Mets and the Phillies, being the anti-vax teams, is so infuriating. The Mets, because I'm a fan of them, and the Phillies, because I'm a fan of the Mets, I see all the time. But there was a report by... there was a there was a story that came out this past week, but written by Matt Gelb kind of detailing some of the Phillies specific anti-vax sentiments where even the guys on the team who have gotten the vaccine have started to theorize very incorrectly that it was the cause of some of their injuries. Specifically, disappointingly, D.D. Gregorius, who we love and loved, and I don't even know how to feel about him anymore after him saying that he thinks that the vaccine caused pseudo gout in his elbow just because he feels that way. And then he comes out and says it. And it's so frustrating because these guys just don't give a shit that they have a platform. They don't care. And they don't care what this stokes and inflames in the world among these fan bases. Like we talk all the time about how baseball is representative of society. And this is just another way, but it's, it's mind boggling that these people with access to the resources that they have can't educate themselves enough to bother with not coming out and saying in the media that the vaccine caused an injury because it didn't, it did not. You just got injured just like dozens and dozens of baseball players do every single year. It has nothing to do with the vaccine. And then the Mets, they, they just won't even get it. So fuck them. But it's an entirely separate situation. They just refuse to get it, but that it, it's fine. Yeah, and it, it feels just as frustrating to me to see players giving cover to their their teammates for this sort of thing and giving them a pass and saying, well, you know, it's a personal decision. Yeah, I got the vaccine, but I, you know, I respect everyone's individual. Like, no, you actually don't have to respect the decision to put other people's lives at risk. You really don't have to. And I understand that like, I I am not expecting players to talk out against their teammates, 
but you also don't have to actively go into the media and say that you respect their decision to do that. Seeing Carlos Carrasco come out and speak of his teammates, Carlos Carrasco, who had leukemia and is presumably immunocompromised, does not need to come out and say, well, it's a personal decision and I respect you know, my teammates' choices to, to not get it. You don't have to do that. It's also a personal decision to get it. You know, like yes. you just as equally you could say it's a personal decision that they are failing failing to make. Yeah. And I mean, I think that we just need to do a better job. Like that baseball just needs to do a better job of holding two ideas in your head at once that you can like your teammate and you can think that it's a personal decision and you can also think it's the wrong personal decision. And maybe you don't have to say it in clear cut terms like I'm saying it right here on this podcast that it's the wrong decision not to get the vaccine and everyone should get the vaccine because it's a public health crisis that we are still currently facing. But you can say no comment and people will understand what you mean. Yeah, not much more to say on that. But um, yeah, it's like the whole just... You know, I don't like what he's saying, but I will defend to hell his right to say it. You don't have to. You don't have to say anything. Yeah. Okay, your final down. My final down, we we had to at least mention it, even though everything that's been said about this, even though that everything that needs to be said about this has been said uh, almost immediately after we put out our podcast last week. Stephen A. Smith just... The timing on this went, one went off about Shohei Otani and his presumed lack of English speaking ability, which is, I mean, if he'd done an ounce of research, he would know that Shohei Otani actually does speak English, but that's not the point because he shouldn't have to. The point is the take, bro. The point is not yeah. facts. The point is the take. It, I mean, it genuinely is. And frankly, Stephen A. Smith was you know, rightly shot down over this in, in multiple venues, even though he issued an, an apology that wasn't really an apology and then had to have Jeff Passan swoop in and look like the, the good guy of the network and just make it look like they've smoothed everything over. I mean, it was a real debacle. But Stephen A. Smith's these comments are a product of ESPN's environment that just looks for the the hot take. And frankly, at this point, it seems like his star and his ability to exist in this environment and churn out hot takes, which he's objectively pretty good at capturing people's attention through these because there's no counterbalance at that network anymore. It he's just kind of allowed to spew this stuff like unopposed. Yep. This is a perfect and example of not good for the discourse. Sorry. It's a perfect example of hate the player and the game. <laughs> like yeah. you can hate the player for this specific take, but also don't forget to hate the game because it created the environment with which this take was born. Many people pointed out first take. I mean, it's it's not just like he gets up there and says whatever he feels like there were graphics that accompanied this take. They talked mm-hmm. about this take ahead of time. Producers heard this take. Producers co-signed this take. Presumably, producers helped craft this take. That means that there was, at minimum, 10 people in a room and they were all like, this is a good idea for you to come out and say this on national television on the most watched sports talk debate show in the history of the planet. And it's just, it's just stupid. And I said this on Twitter, but it's really frustrating time and time again to try to make a podcast like ours where we try not to do this stuff and to watch a take like that get rewarded with attention 
and get rewarded with $12 million a year or whatever it is. It's just, it's like mind grading. <laughs> Every single time it happens. Right. And his supposed opposition on the show, Max Kellerman, couldn't even come out and, and give, a, give a full-throated you know, counter-argument. Even he was, you know, kind of nodding his head. He's like, no, yeah, no, it was probably be good, good for him to speak English. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, yeah. And then you had, I mean, uh, it, and then you had Will Kane rushing to Stephen A's defense, which <laughs> you really got to pay attention to who your take attracts. Yeah, never good when you're the the moderator of your debate. Molly Karim has to come in and push back on you a little bit. The person who's just supposed to be moving the conversation along is like, hang on, someone has to say something about this. She does this a lot, though, actually. She's pretty good at that aspect of the show. Over the years, she's she's become much more empowered to like disagree with the takes when both of them are wrong. With, right. Which well, more power to like, her. It's like, yeah, that's the thing. It's yeah. like, if the two headliners are that wrong, in that that wrong that frequently, you have a problem on your hands. Yes. Yes. But like you said, more power to her for actually feeling empowered to step up and push back on this bullshit yeah um anyway okay we're gonna move to up and speaking of otani uh he did not win the home run derby however for even participating in the home run derby you get a prize uh if you exit in the first round i believe that prize is one hundred fifty thousand dollars. otani then took that one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, according to a story in the oc register and he divvied it up among angels employees so trainers ballpark staff um, you know, just people in the front office who make less money than he does. And I just think that's that's super tight. I love seeing stories like this. I'm a sucker for stories like this. Him acknowledging the existence of the other workers within the organization who make it possible for him to go out there and do what he does and capture the attention of the entire world. It's very cool. And I'm, I'm glad to see that Otani is the type of person to do something like this. Yeah, it always feels very vindicating when the player who like smiles a lot and seems like he's having a lot of fun on the field. And so you build a relationship with him and you just say, man, I hope he's a good guy, actually. And then it turns out he actually is. Yeah, that's a that's a win in my book. Agreed. Most valuable person. Oh, Shohei so true. So true. Most valuable in our hearts as well. OK, what's first up for you? Um. <laughs> I forgot that I also had an all-star game thing on my list. Dude. Big sorry, all-star game sorry. guys over here, apparently. Uh we're just I'm I'm going back to ESPN's um <laughs> failed failed production. Okay. If you're gonna mic players up, you gotta do a little bit of research beforehand. Yeah. Just a tiny bit. Is this, you just have to watch any any other game. Is this a Liam Hendricks player. thing? This is a Liam Hendricks. Okay, I have this on my up as well. <laughs> okay, there you go. They they mic'd up closer Liam Hendricks, uh, White Sox closer Liam Hendricks, former A, former A, and uh, noted Australian, noted uh, just absolute gamer when he's out there, right? Really, really, I, by all accounts, sweet dude off the field, and just absolute villain when he is on the mound, and um, and he dropped some choice words, being mic'd up, and frankly, like. I feel like pitchers and especially closers are kind of like the the last people I'm really interested in having mic'd up watching a baseball game because I'm not expecting them to talk to me. 
yeah, to like have a coherent thought. Yeah. Like I kind of know that they are like in full monster mode when it's also I kind like, of know that they're in full monster mode when they're out there. Yeah. Like, I, just, I don't need to hear it. Hitters too. Like, how are you expecting to have a conversation while also trying to hit 99 with movement in the all-star game? It's just, yeah. I mean, it's a good try. Nice effort. Didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Also, I, I mean, for, for what it's worth, the, the actual broadcast of the all-star game was by Fox. So we can't th- pin this one on ESPN. Oh, yikes. Okay. That's Sorry, fair. ESPN. You do not, under any circumstances, have to hand it to ESPN, though. Um, no, I thought that this could have gone very wrong. I don't know why they didn't cut his mic. He said he didn't know that it was still working, which means that I kind of think that there was like an ethical question to leaving his mic going because he thought it wasn't on. Because <laughs> he couldn't hear Joe Buck in his ear, so he thought his end wasn't working either. But obviously, viewers were still hearing that he was yelling, fuck, and damn it, and Jesus Christ, all this stuff that he was yelling. So, like, we were spying on Liam Hendricks as, like, NSA adjacent. I didn't like it. I didn't like it. It made me uncomfortable. I ended up putting it on my up because it was funny that Liam Hendricks was yelling fuck on national television. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm generally pro hearing athletes say things they probably shouldn't be saying on national television, although I'm sure that someone got in trouble over that. Yeah. Someone definitely got in trouble for that. Yeah. Okay. That was another one of my ups. So, I'm going to kick it back to you. Well, we talked about minor league baseball earlier this week, and if you've listened to this podcast before, you may have heard me talk about the, the Staten Island Yankees, beautiful, beautiful little ballpark on the water that, um, that recently had their minor league affiliate removed. But baseball's coming back. Oh, We're going to get an Atlantic League baseball team in Staten Island, and I'm stoked. Because it's a beautiful ballpark. And as we discussed earlier, having baseball, however big or small, in a community is, I think, a really important thing to building interest in the game. Whether it is for a major league baseball team or for a minor league baseball team or for an independent league team, baseball is good. That's the take. That's it. The good people of Staten Island, they just need more, you know. I can't wait for the first night to be like cop appreciation night. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, I know. They get to uh, pick the team name through a naming contest. So what is it? Yeah, what's it going to be? Like Staten, Staten Island, Island back Blue, Blue Lives? Blue. <laughs> Staten Island Blue Lives? <laughs> One word. Right, exactly. Yeah. My third up this week was a beautiful example of the simulation that we're living in, Alex. I don't know if this is real. I don't know if this was a bit. I don't know if this was fake. However, it was going around on baseball Twitter, so it's real enough to be brought up at the 90-minute mark of this podcast here. Uh, Stephen A. Smith, as you mentioned, he stepped in it. He apologized three separate times. The third apology was deemed acceptable by the network because he didn't put out a fourth apology. But Stephen A. tweeted out a video of that third apology. And in the replies to that tweet was a tweet that I'm going to read before I read the name of the person who sent it. Great apologies, young man. I only wish my son's employers had been as forgiving as yours. Your words and sincerity were heartfelt. Keep up your good work. Alex, that tweet was sent by... (laughs) I don't know if this is the real guy, but it was sent by an account with the name Marty Brenneman. Father of Tom Brenneman. 
key of the saying, the anti-gay slur on Fox Sports Ohio, and then leading to the greatest meme in baseball history. Nick Castellanos homer is in a four. It's a four zero ball game. This is like <laughs> we hit for the cycle in one tweet. We hit for the baseball Twitter meme cycle in one single tweet. I love it. I laughed so hard when I saw this. I have to assume this is the this is the the real guy, right? Like he was a a broadcaster himself. It is in the bio. He is. Like followed by by other people in our community. If like if you were going to catfish on Twitter, it would be really interesting to pretend that you were retired Reds broadcaster Marty Brenneman. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I've, uh, I've done. Also, if you look at things. if you look at his most recent tweets, it's two separate tweets about Blake Snell getting pulled from Game Five of the World Series, Game Six of the yeah. World Series, I should say, with just a very blurry, low res image of Blake Snell. Like it's not- yes, <laughs> like slightly different low res. <laughs> like it is the same photo cropped different, different, different versions. <laughs> I don't know if it's real. I don't care if it's real. It doesn't matter if it's real. It made me laugh. This man's name is Franchester Martin Brenneman. <laughs> Just I don't I don't have anything more to say on that, but I, you know, I guess that's what you get. I don't think it's real. You don't I mean, I'm seeing like local newspapers report on it. So it is real. <laughs> I have to assume they've done their due diligence. Oh man. So good. What's your final up? My final up this week is just the the continued existence of my favorite celebrity relationship. One Cole Tucker and Vanessa Hudgens. Uh, Va- Cole Nessa? Vanol? Vanol? That sounds like an Italian I- curse word that they would use in The Sopranos. <laughs> Vanol. You Vanol. <laughs> I look, I just, I'm just rooting for him. I like them. Yeah. It seems like they like each other. They've been dating since late last year. Um, Vanessa, the, the, the pirates, as you know, Bobby were in town to play the New York Mets. Stop. No more. And while things may not have gone well for, for, for Mets fans, Vanessa was there showing out for her boy. Is Cole Tucker even playing anymore? I thought he got sent down. Um, he is, I believe he's on the major league roster, although he's not starting, but that just makes me believe in their love even more, you know, that, that she's out there. He may not even be playing, but she just wants to come and support him and his boys. She's not expecting him to like become an MLB all-star. Right. Which he could based on the the flow alone. And based on the fact that no one else will do it, Alex. How many people are going to drop out of this game until Cole Tucker gets sent to the All-Star game? Is that it? You just, the whole up was like, you're happy for them? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, again, I'm like, this is like, what a a grab for Cole Tucker. Yeah, seriously. Cole Tucker flexing on every other MLB player. Um, And and for Vanessa Hudgens, because Cole Tucker just seems like a a good dude. You know? He's just like a kid who likes... Listening to music and wearing graphic tees, and frankly, same Vanessa Hudgens wives, right here. <laughs> oh my god! 
<laughs> Amazing moment. Alex petitioning to steal Cole Tucker's girl on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell my girlfriend. Okay. Uh, that's going to do it for this week of tipping pitches before Alex gets himself in more trouble. Uh, housekeeping stuff. Uh, the voicemail number is 785-422-5881. You can write into the podcast at tippingpitchespod at gmail.com. Obviously, our Twitter just much more successful than our podcast is tipping underscore pitches speaking of the success of our podcast we would absolutely love very very much we, we would love you so much if you would send this podcast to someone that you think would enjoy it whether they be a baseball fan a labor fan or especially if they're both uh we have some new merch on the way it's not announced yet but please know that we will give you the exclusive info that you need to know on this podcast as soon as we are ready to give that info so make sure you're listening. Discount code still in effect. A-Rod, 15% off. Alex, I think I got everything. Did I forget to tell the lovely listeners of this podcast any information? No, Bobby. I think you you covered it well. Thank you to everyone for listening. And, and we'll be back next week. Your girl gives the best Everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya!